Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 30th, 2022. And um, in parallel with the Ukraine war, America is going through its own war, perhaps, a cultural war which has been ongoing, perhaps since indeed the beginning of the Republic. Headlines today, Susan Collins, a so-called centrist uh, Republican senator from Maine, has um, agreed to back uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to sit on the Supreme Court. It's an interesting move. Uh, Jackson has found herself, uh, I think, through no choice of her own, in the middle of a, a cultural war. Um, African-American women have flooded to her defense after one Republican um, senator, uh, Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, asked her what a woman looked like. She might have been uh, not what a woman looked like, what a woman was. She might have asked her what a woman looked like or what an American looked like caused a great deal of controversy. Uh, black women in America have, have talked about it, not just being the hair, seems to be a degree of perhaps racism or cultural appropriation in the um, in the Blackburn assumption. Uh, black women, uh, to quote another headline, have bonded over Katanji Brown Jackson's look. Question, of course, is what should American women, particularly black, brown women, look like uh, in the America, not of 1920 or 1970, but of 2022. My guest today, uh, Julissa uh, Arce, has a new book out on this very subject. You sound like a white girl, the case for rejecting assimilation. It, it might be equally titled, You Look Like a White Girl, the case for rejecting assimilation. Uh, Julissa, welcome. Um, what do you make of this latest cultural brouhaha over Katanji Jackson? Does it resonate with you? Well, it resonates in that in the book, I talk about uh, immigrants, black and brown people being asked to do all of these things to be considered American, to belong, to get a good education, to speak good English, to um, be successful. And even when we do all of those things, belonging is still something that doesn't quite belong to us. It's something that we don't quite reach uh, because of the assumptions about who is an American and who is not. And I think that what's going on right now with Just Jackson really illustrates my point. I mean, she is incredibly qualified to be on the Supreme Court, I would argue more qualified than some of the conservatives that are on the court. And yet she is being questioned at every turn. She is being asked to answer for her entire community in a way that white people are not asked to answer for their own communities. And so I, I think it, it sort of, um, if I had been if I had been writing the book now, um, I would include I would include um, a section about what she's going through and how it feels very familiar 
although different because my experience is not that of a black woman. And so I can't speak. Um, I really can't speak for, for anybody other than for myself, but, um, but it's not, you know, her experience is unique um, and something that I'll never quite understand because I'm not in her shoes, but there are similarities and parallels there. Your manifesto, you sound like a, a white girl is, is pretty controversial and not everyone will agree, Julie. So you argue that um, assimilation has more steps to complete as you master one more appear. Who, who is determining how you get assimilated? Are other people in control or is it just some sort of unspoken process? I think it's an unspoken it's an unspoken process, and it's in, it's sort of been interesting to hear, um, you know, uh, people calling the the book uh, controversial or um, some of the things that I'm talking about being controversial because all all I'm really doing in the book is to say that we should find belonging by creating spaces for ourselves instead of always trying to have the what I call the white stamp of approval um, because you know I, I spent a really long time when I first came to the United States at the age of 11 trying to speak like a white girl, trying to enunciate my words so that I could get rid of my accent. I would be embarrassed to uh, bring my food to school. I wanted to just bring a bologna sandwich like the white kids in my school did. Um, and so I think that there is, um, there's sort of this, uh, there's sort of this understanding that if you're going to be in America, you have to act a certain way to be American. And the example of that American is never someone who looks like me, despite the fact that there are many Latinos who have never crossed the border. There are many Latinos who have never been immigrants. The border crossed them when the United States illegally invaded Mexico and stole so much of Mexican land, there were Mexicans living there already. And so what I'm trying to do is simply to reject the notion that there is one way to be American. There are many ways because I am American and so is my brother who was born here. And so are many people that I know that are, that are not white people and we too are American. Julissa, might it be fairer to say that your definition of American certainly is true. It certainly was true, and there's some truth to it now. But there really are now two Americas. They're the America of Marsha Blackburn, the America of an increasingly white Republican Party, which is itself self-segregated self to the South. And then the America that you're comfortable with, the America of Los Angeles, the America of California, the American of the big city. Uh, and these two Americans are competing to define what the future of the country should be, for better or worse. Is that, uh, that's my sense, but maybe I'm wrong. Perhaps you'll correct me. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that... Um you know, some of the some of the experiences that I've had that I talk about in the book um, of of encountering racism, of encountering bias, they happened to me in New York City, in Los Angeles. Um, and so I don't think that these issues of race and racism are 
exclusive to rural communities, to uh, to the South, to Republicans. Um, I think there are many liberal uh, white Americans who still have unconscious biases, and so I don't, I don't, the. the I don't sort of think of America as this. I do think that there are two Americas. I think uh, in the book I mentioned that you know there is an America that is never going to see me as American. That it's always going to question my being in this country um, because I was undocumented for a long time. I I now am a U.S. citizen, but for 15 years I was not. And so I think that there is an America that no matter what I do, no matter how much I accomplish, no matter how much I give back to this country, they're always going to ask me where I'm really from. You know, when I say I'm from Los Angeles or from New York or from Texas, they're always going to question whether where I'm really, really from. Um, and then there is an America that I think understands that America to me ultimately is a concept and a concept that's evolving. And it's it's false that this country is a country that was created only for and by white people. Um, so th those, th th that's the way that I sort of divide the two Americas, not so much geographically. Uh, you mentioned your history, this book, uh, You Sound Like a White Girl, as a follow-up to uh, your first book, uh, Someone Like Me, How One Undocumented Girl Fought for Her American dream. Perhaps you might say something about your history, Julissa. Mm. And yeah. what exactly you mean by an American dream and whether that's even a concept that we should in this ideally post-racial America uh, use, whether that's language that has any value. Yeah. Um, so that uh, someone like me is my second book. Uh, my first I apologize. Book. Yeah. It's no, it's uh, my underground American dream. Um, they're 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 similar because someone like me is a young adult version of my my first book, my memoir. Um, but but you know both of those both of those books tell tell my personal story, um, which I'll tell you about in a, in a minute. Um, but I also don't think that we live in a post racial America. I think that's part of the argument that I make in my in my new book. You sound like a white girl that that we're not living in a post-racial America. We're still very much uh, struggling with and fighting against the racist ideals on which this country was built. Um, you know, I came to the United States when I was 11 years old from Mexico. And when I turned 14, my visa expired. And that's when I became undocumented. And for the next 15 years, I remained so, not because I wanted to, not because I didn't want to get in the back of the line and wait my turn, not because I didn't want to fill out paperwork, but because truly a pathway to legalization, a pathway to citizenship for many people does not exist. I was not eligible to fix my immigration status um, until I married and my husband's a US citizen and therefore I was eligible. And also because I came here with a visa. Had I crossed the border, then even if I was married to an American citizen and had US citizen children, I would still not be eligible um, to fix my immigration status. And so that's one of the myths that I tried to uh, dismantle in the book is that 
um, there is no real right way to come to America. And much of American immigration policies have been driven by issues of race. And if you look sort of historically, you know, including the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, um, that was the first, the first um, law that was passed that excluded an entire group of people based on their race. Um, and, and from then on, uh, race has been central to issues of race. I mean, I think we're seeing that right now play out in real life with what, it, what is going on with Ukrainian refugees. Absolutely, we should welcome Ukrainian refugees. And at the same time, we should treat other refugees trying to enter this country in the same way that we're treating Ukrainian refugees. Because so often we do not, because they are not white Europeans. Julissa, in the book, uh, You Sound Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation, you write quite a lot about language, which is, of course, natural given that books are articulated in that <laughs> you wrote uh, English did not protect me from the powerful race mm. dynamics that labeled me foreign perhaps you might explain what that means and also whether you're suggesting that for America to be true democracy or for us to all collectively realize the American dream it must by definition be a multilingual community yeah, and you you asked me about the American dream in the previous question, and I and I didn't answer it, um, but but I but I will now um, because I think it sort of starts with English. Um, I think that there is this sort of understanding that you must speak English because you are in America, and we've seen viral videos of people screaming at somebody, demanding that they speak English. You must be, speak English. This is America. And first, the United States doesn't have an official language. Um, so, you know, we can speak whatever language we want to speak in this country. I, of course, when I was young and now think it's important to speak English because it's the language that most people in this country speak. And it makes my life a lot easier to be able to communicate in English. But I think that the reason I want to speak English is because it's easy for me, not because somebody else is demanding that I do because when I did that, when I spoke English because people demanded that I do, um, I, I sort of give this example in the book of being in, in my classroom and one, my teachers treated me as though I was not smart because I didn't speak English. Even though, you know, in Mexico, I was a straight eight student even though the concepts, the math concepts I was learning in sixth grade in the United States, I had learned in the fourth grade in Mexico. I've, I've always really liked school, which is something that, uh, that I think people find funny because I'm like, I like taking tests. I like getting an A on test. Um, and yet my teachers treated me as though my inability to speak English was a signal for my intelligence. And I think that instead of faulting and demonizing non-English speakers, if we created an environment where we could keep our language and also learn English, we would learn English faster because there would not be um, these traumatic experiences <laughs> when we're learning English. And as a country, we would be 
a lot better if more people were multilingual. I mean, every time I go to Europe, people there speak two or three languages. And isn't that a beautiful thing that you can communicate in multiple in multiple languages? So so I do think that, you know, um, more people should learn to speak more than one language. Um, Julissa, uh, we, we began today talking about uh, Katan, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson and how she looked and how that seemed to be something that Marsha Blackburn was talking in her own language. You've talked about formal language. What about what you wear and how you look? A few months ago, I had a wonderful conversation with a female academic, Gillian Hernandez. She has uh, an interesting new book out, Aesthetics of Excess, The Art and Politics mm. of Black and Latina Empowerment. She idealizes people like the Chonga girls. And when she appeared on the show, it was a really fun conversation. She talked about the importance of celebrating one's own look. So it's not just avoiding sounding like a white girl, but looking like a white girl. Would you agree with her on that front? Are the aesthetics of what, what she at least calls the the aesthetics of excess, is that something that um, is part of the same conversation that you introduce and you sound like a white girl? Yeah, I have not um, read the book, although now I'm really interested. Yeah, I think you'd love it, actually. I think it's very much in in concert with what you're saying, although slightly more academic, maybe. Order it right now. Um, But I do think I do think that part of it is, um, you know, these norms uh, that somebody at some point established. For example, why are pearls considered professional and I can wear a pearl necklace and to work and that's professional but if I wore big hoop earrings to work that would not be considered appropriate that would be considered unprofessional and I do think that we need to kind of break down those norms because they're antiquated norms um you know I when I worked on Wall Street right now my nails are you know there's 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 art on my nails um these flowers that are painted on my nails are very yeah show the show not everyone will be um watching but maybe Julissa, for people just listening you can describe your nails they're sensational i need nails yeah, like that yeah they're they are <laughs> they're very they're long nails they're they're a, a color that is called rosa mexicano which is a, a bright fuchsia pink color and there are flowers on them that you very often find on tablecloths uh, in, in, in Mexico. And I wanted to wear these nails on my book tour because in this way, in this small way, I am owning my culture. I am wearing my culture. Mm. It and goes with the, actually, are, it goes with the look and feel of the book itself. I assume you had yeah, some control over the cover. So. <laughs> yes. And that was on purpose. I wanted to, to match my book cover. Very um, cool. And, you know, I, there are spaces though where wearing these nails would not be considered professional. And um, at one point in my life, I might have, I might have been uncomfortable to wear these nails. These are things that I would wear on the weekends and take off on Monday morning, um, where now I feel very proud to wear them everywhere I go um, because they are a part of me. And 
I think that that's the biggest danger with assimilation is that I, I give an example in the book that, you know, a snake, a snake has to shed its skin, right, to grow and to heal. But at its core, it remains a snake. It gets to be who it is. And assimilation is not like that. Assimilation asks us to shed our culture, our heritage, and become something else, except that something else is not attainable for us. And so I feel incredibly proud now to be able to wear my culture, my heritage on my body, in my language, and at the same time, proudly be able to say that I am an American. And I, I you know, I, I think one of the beautiful things about immigrants is that we choose this country. We weren't just born here and so we live here. We choose to make this place our home. And I do that because I love this place. I've been here the majority of my life. This is probably where I will be for the rest of my life. And it is because I love this place that I want it to be better. It's good stuff from Julissa uh, Arce, the author of a really interesting new book. I won't call it controversial anymore, Julissa. It's post-controversial. <laughs> it's okay. You sound like a white girl. Could be entitled, You Look Like a White Girl. Wonderful conversation, uh, Julissa. We're, we're going to take a short break, and then I want to come back, and I want to talk about the politics of this world in particular and what we can and can't say in this new world. Talking to Julissa Arce, the author of You Sound Like a White Girl. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We are back with Julissa Arce, the author of You Sound Like a White Girl. Um, Julissa, uh, Julissa, um, uh, earlier this week, uh, I had a, a um, 
slightly older woman, but also still a, a relatively young woman, Monica Guzman on the show. She has an interesting new book out. I never thought of it that way. How to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times. She's writing about an America like the same America you're writing about, which is divided, but about how we can talk to one another. And a lot of her narrative is built around how she was able to talk to her parents who were big Trump supporters. What's your sense of the generational divide when it comes to politics? Is the generational divide more problematic than the cultural one in terms of us learning to talk to one another? Or in contrast with Monica, are you less worried about us learning to talk to one another? Is that another American conceit? Well, I I wrote this book, uh, You Sound Like a White Girl, for the choir, is, is what I say in the book. I I don't write this book to convince someone else of my ideas. I didn't write this book so that someone else can look at me and say, oh yeah, she deserves to be American. Um, so uh, perhaps we are, you know, again, I haven't read the book, but uh, per, so I don't know what case she's making. Yeah, it's a very, um, it, it's a nice autobiography. It has a, the sort of the same similarly autobiographical narrative as yours. It's about a slightly different subject, but the same country. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of times when we say that we should talk to each other, many times what it, what that means and what it, what it actually, um, uh, you know, what it actually looks like in real life, it, it sometimes looks like people like me convincing somebody else of our humanity. And we're the ones that have to make compromises. And it doesn't feel many times as though the conversations are real two-way conversations or that the compromises are real two-way compromises. It does feel like we give up more. Um, and so, you know, my book is, is, is to energize us, to empower us, to, for us to discover um, a history that has been denied to us. Uh, and, and, and for people who are outside of my community who want to read the book and learn, uh, I very much welcome that. I very much welcome you to, to read the book and to learn perhaps things that you didn't know before, because I, I learned a lot of things that I didn't know before as I researched for the book. Um, so I, I mean, of course, I think that it's important to have conversations with people who don't think like you. But I am much less interested in having those conversations with the purpose of convincing somebody else that I, too, am human and that I, too, deserve to be in this country. What about the politics of this, Julissa? Um, there's a huge debate now, both on the left and the right in America, about uh, if you like the politics of assim assimilation or the, or, or the politics the cultural politics of one group or other voting for one or other parties. There's an interesting headline today on the Daily Beast. Um, Latinos deserve respect. Why won't either party 
give it. And there's a great debate about whether Latinos are naturally part of the Democratic Party, an interesting New York Times op-ed uh, earlier this week, while Democrats debate uh, Latinx, Latinos head to the GOP, more and more fear within the Democratic Party that uh, that the Latino community is actually, in some ways, perhaps more sympathetic to the GOP than the Democrats. Are the is the politics of the world, the America that you want, is it inevitably cultural? Well, I think that um, I think that all these things are related. I think that culture uh, shifts policy and policy creates uh, difficulties in the culture or it opens doors for the culture. Um, you know, to me, it's very clear. Two things are clear to me. One is that the GOP has taken a turn for the worse. They have become the party of Trump. They have become the party of white nationalists. And that's not to say that every Republican is a white nationalist. That is to say that the leadership and that the essence of the party is that. Um, they've become the party of fear mongering. Uh, you know, when they have nothing else to, to uh, argue about, they will scapegoat immigrants. Now, having said that, uh, you know, I am a registered Democrat. I uh, have not voted for very long because I was not a U.S. citizen until 2014. But, um, but I, you know, when I when I have voted, um, I have voted uh, Democrat in the presidential elections. So, um, but also, you know, there are times when I'm very disappointed with the Democratic Party. Um, because while we help get them elected, many times the promises that they make are are not kept. Um, they're they're broken. And of course, right now, many of the things that could have passed in Congress have been filibustered by Republicans. So um, so I do take that into account when I say, you know, Democrats have broken their promises because they understand what they're up against in Congress. Um, but in either in either party, um, there have been mistakes made. There have been scapegoating of immigrants, and it's unfortunate that most of the time, the people who pay the consequences for 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 this debate are immigrants, are people of color, are low income people. Um, you know, I think some of this rhetoric around Latinos running to the GOP, I think some of these headlines are just clickbait headlines because... Well, but they are from uh, fairly, I mean, the ones I found anyway, I mean, they're from quite respected television stations, New York Times. I mean, they're yeah, not and, making judgments, and I think perhaps, they're just reporting. Yeah, um, but, I, you know, I think reporting, I think it's it's false to say that reporting doesn't have a bias uh, because ultimately uh, the facts that you're reporting contribute to a bias. You are choosing what to report on and what not to report on. There is an editor who's choosing what stories are important, and that is bias. Um, but, you know, outside of that, uh, the majority of Latinos continue to be Democrat. I think part of the reason that, you know, there's this disappointment that the things that we're hoping will happen don't happen. And so, um, and I think, you know, part of it, part of what I say in the book is that there is this sort of idea that 
um, that Latinos of the past, um, and not individual Latinos, but as a community, we have sought acceptance in whiteness. We have sought proximity to whiteness. And I think that that is a little bit of what's happening, that we are seeking the protection of whiteness by turning to the GOP, but historically, that strategy has never worked out in our favor. And I hope that more of us realize and recognize that um, we cannot, we cannot, um, I cannot as a Latina be a part of a party that demonizes us, part of a party and members of that party who declined repeatedly to call the attacks of El Paso a terrorist attack. That is not something that I that fits in my mind, quite frankly. <laughs> um, and I've spoken to some of these Latinos who have turned to the GOP, and I cannot understand how that would happen. Julissa, um, the idea of whiteness, do you think it's comparable with detachment, reasonableness. I had a show a few months ago, I thought it was very good, with a African-American writer, Maisha Cherry, on anger as a tool for defeating racism. She has a new book out, The Case for Rage, Why Anger Mm -hmm. is Essential to Anti-Racist Struggle. Do you think that just as sounding like a white girl or looking like a white girl is something that um, is problematic, Thinking like a white girl in, in, in the reasonable language of what some people define as the American dream is equally problematic? Well, I think that whiteness and white people are two different concepts. Um, I, you know, I, I've been on book tour and several people have asked me, um, like, is this book anti-white? And, and it just kind of makes me chuckle a little because it's not an anti-white book. Um, it is a book against white supremacy. It is a book against uh, the systems that whiteness creates and propels. Um, I think if you are a white girl, and you sound like a white girl, you should, you're a white girl. Uh, but even that, you know, sounding like a white girl, like not all white people sound the same. I mean, that's well, I, I mean, my is... point is that the traditional notion of white girls is they're not angry, although as it happens now, white girls in America do seem to be angrier. Uh, given the history of African-Americans, the history of slavery, the history of immigration, the history of racism, um, do you think that something like anger makes more sense to communities like yours? As opposed to what? As opposed to reason, to detachment. Well, I think that I, I, um, I think the way that I would frame that is that um, I think reason is part of the anger. Um, I think that there is a righteousness in anger. And I think that anger, um, I think that anger can move people to action. And um, I think sometimes anger is misunderstood. Um, Anger is not 
necessarily attached to the negative ways in which we view anger. I think anger can be something that um, can be transformational. You know, I was very angry when I was researching the book and learning about so many of the things that my people have been through that I never even knew about. But I didn't stay in that anger, you know. Yeah, and I, I think that that, that is uh, Maisha Cherry's point. And I think you're probably in her on her side when it comes for the case for rage. Uh, fi- finally, uh, Julissa, we've had so many shows about learning from indigenous the indigenous traditions from indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. It's increasingly a feature of many new books, particularly when it comes to the environment. We've done a couple of very recent shows about having to save big forests, forests with the planet. Uh, I did a conversation with John W. Reed earlier this week about saving big forests to save the planet. And he argues that the indigenous peoples, he traveled around the world to various forests in in the Amazon, um, in uh, in Borneo. And he argues that to save the environment, we really need to rethink the very nature of, the, the, the very essence of nature and our relations with nature which goes back to indigenous traditions, the indigenous traditions that you touched on earlier. Do you think there's some truth to that? Do you think that the the way to perhaps not just save the American environment, but the American dream, the American enterprise, is by going back to the traditions of indigenous peoples? Um, I've, I've not thought about that very much um, in the past. Um, and I think that, you know, we have to be somewhat careful not to um, appropriate indigenous traditions and cultures. Uh, but certainly, there is a truth to um, the wisdom that exists in indigenous communities, the um, the caring for the planet that is embedded in indigenous traditions. I don't know that, I I think the American dream sometimes feels more like an illusion than a dream because it's not something that is attainable for many people. And part of the work that I do outside of being a writer is to be an activist so that we can create more equal opportunities for people so that everyone's hard work is rewarded in the same way. Um, And there's a lot, I do think, that we can learn from indigenous communities uh, who who have in them thousands of years of survival. Yeah, I uh, learn from that. I'm pleased you say that. Um, When does when can you justify borrowing as opposed to appropriation? Uh, you were involved in the big debate about the the, the novel American Dirt. Uh, you were even on the, the Oprah show, I think, uh, talking about it. Um, borrowing wisdom is not the same as appropriation, isn't it? No, I think, I think that appropriation comes when... Um, when people think that they invented those things, when um, when there is no credit given to the original creators um, uh, uh, of it, when um, when we want the culture but not the people, 
um, certainly there's a lot of things that I have learned from other communities that I try to implement in my work, but I'm very careful not to call them my original ideas and to give credit back where it's, um, where it's due. Well, wisdom from Julissa Arce, the author of the extremely not controversial, you sound like <laughs> a white girl, the case for rejecting assimilation, very wise and very interesting and very articulate as she is in person. Congratulations, Julissa, on, on the new book. I think it will be Thank a big you. success like your first two books. Um, in addition to your new book, You Sound Like a White Girl, what else should people be reading in late March 2022? Any other book suggestions? Yes. Oh, my God. There's an amazing book um, called The Ballad of Love and Glory. It's an it's not it's a historical fiction novel by Reina Grande, and it's set during the Mexican-American War, which is a piece of history that is so critical to the American story and so often overlooked. Um, highly, highly recommend um, her book. And I've just if this this uh, this book has been out for for a little while, but um I've just started reading it now, which is called L.A. Weather. Um, it's it's a really fun, a really fun novel. Uh, and it was interesting to hear the, the author talk about, um, you know, people think that L.A. just has like the same weather, that we don't have seasons. And yet we have, you know, uh, storms and we have fires and we have um, heat waves. And, 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 and it's just it's a really fun, it's a really fun read. Um, that explores, uh, follows this, this Latino family, um, for one year and every chapter is a different day on which a major weather event really happened in Los Angeles. Yeah. And you are talking to us, of course, from Los Angeles. I'm in San Francisco. Thank Finally, you. Julissa, uh, Julissa, um, in late March, 2022, who, who do you think is in charge of things? Who's running the world these days? Well, I think women are running the world these days, as we always have, whether it's been um, whether it's been credited to us or not. Uh, I feel like women, we run we run things, we keep things moving uh, and progressing.